going to the book of Luke, chapter 9, going to be reading to you verses 23 through 27. This, I remind you, is God's own word. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. For, who does, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. And now, our God, as we come to you, Lord, to this very difficult text, Lord, it is a text that challenges us, Lord, to our very core of our being. I pray, Lord, that you would use me to speak the words that are right, use me to challenge your people, but, Lord, I pray, God, that I would also show Christ and the gospel of Christ and the grace of God. But I pray, Lord, that you would be lifted up, that your Son would be exalted through this. And I pray that you'd speak to the hearts of your people as only you can. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week I told you I'm not a holiday preacher, but I did make an exception last week, I mentioned. But you will forgive me this week if I go back to the Gospel of Luke and don't preach a New Year's message. However... The text is certainly valid as a New Year's text, and anybody could have chosen it for that. So uh, it is a challenge that we can take with us into the new year. And so we are continuing in Luke chapter 9. Two weeks ago, I had originally intended to preach through verse 27, which I read this morning, but instead I ended my message at verse 22, and part of the reason was because of the amount of material I ended up with in preparing the message But there was another reason besides that as well. As a pastor or preacher, I I have to confess to you, there are passages of Scripture that I don't really feel qualified to preach about. I shared with uh, someone here a little while ago that uh, years ago uh, when I was in Hammond and we would do our family meetings every year, one of the things we'd always ask the people is, is there any particular passage of scripture you'd like me to preach on? And invariably, every year, someone would say, Revelation. (laughs) And I never felt like I was ready to preach out of Revelation. But finally, one year after this person had asked about four or five years in a row, I acquiesced, and on Sunday evenings I began a series on Revelation. But before I got into the really difficult part of the book, I got a call to plant a church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, so I got to abandon that series completely and not have to preach out of it at all. Another book I've never felt qualified. I really love to preach out of this book. I've never felt like I can. It's Song of Solomon. But I'd really love someday, but I've got to get old enough uh, to be able to do that. So maybe one day that'll happen. But this morning, again, we come to this passage that talks about denying oneself and taking up the cross. And I start thinking about that, and I think, what do I, what do I know about that kind of stuff? And, and how can I stand in front of these people and and talk about about this. 
I'm standing here in front of you this morning as someone who is obviously well-fed, someone who's being well-paid, someone who has nice a nice housing, good health for his age, a nice vehicle, and getting ready to go on a cruise to Hawaii. Yes, those are the credentials of someone that can speak about denying himself and taking up the cross. And some of you are thinking, yes, that's exactly the kind of cross I want. I, I want to be right there with you. But there's always another side of preaching. And the other side of preaching is I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me as well. And the thing that comforts me is that God's word is God's word. It's not dependent upon the messenger. It's dependent upon the word itself. And uh, so we can go with that joy as well. And God can speak to us through the word. No matter who it is that is preaching, God can do that. But I will confess to you, I'd, I'd actually rather be preaching out of Revelation this morning than, than the text before me. But nevertheless, let's move on to the text, and perhaps we can all be challenged by what Christ tells us. We'll start with verse 23. And uh, really, verse 22 leads into these verses. It's been noted that verse 22 is really a summary of what we confessed in the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I noted in verse 22 last time I spoke out of that, that Jesus said these things must happen to him. Okay, these must. He said the Son of Man must. It was the divine must. But what I'm speaking about to you today is a command. It's not a, it's not a must in the sense that it's got, it's got to happen, but it is a command in the sense that we are to do what he says. In verse 23, Jesus calls the multitude together for what he has to say. It isn't clear in our text when it says them all what that means, but Mark, uh, Mark's version says in chapter 8 and verse 34, having summoned the crowd together with his disciples. That's that crowd, that oklos in Greek that I told you about before, those vast, uncommitted multitudes, but also his disciples that he brings before him. So this is a general commission he's given, not just to his disciples, but to all of those that are gathered around him. And now Luke just moves right on to a teaching of discipleship that the Lord gives. And it revolves around Christians denying themselves and taking up their cross. And he specifically addresses those that would want to come after him. And, and that word after that, that is there when it says come after him, it's the same word that, that used when uh, Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. That word after is also translated there behind because it is the idea of someone coming behind a teacher and putting himself ready to follow them in whatever they would lead them on. And so that's what it means. To come behind means to follow as a disciple. And in verse 23, Jesus first speaks of what they must do. And we have three different verbs here, all kind of dealing with the same things, but with uh, different emphasis on uh, those different things. And, and so he says uh, they are to deny, they are to take up, and they are to follow. Those are the verbs that we have. First, he says, we should deny ourselves. That's the first thing he says. The word here for deny in Greek is a particularly strong word. Outside of here, and the parallel passages for this in Matthew and Mark, outside of there, the only places we find it are the passages that deal with the denying of Peter, uh, of Christ, when Peter denies Christ. It's used there. And the only other place it's found outside of that 
is also in Luke. It comes later in Luke, Luke 12, 8 and 9. And Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Again, a very strong statement of the Lord. Richard Phillips says the word deny means to, uh, to forget oneself entirely. And that's hard to do, but uh, something we are to do in following Christ. Without denying the truth of sovereign election, which of course we hold too dearly, but our coming to Christ must in a way involve the giving up of ourselves and the giving up of our rights as ourselves. It is a way of lifelong living saying, not my will, but thy will be done. That's difficult to do, but it's really difficult to do in a, in a culture that's always emphasizing our rights. We live in a culture where everybody's crying about their rights and complaining about their rights and, and the rights that they have. And, and, and so we are living in that kind of a culture that, that does that. And not only the rights, but, but tells us that we should do what we want and we should be proud of it. Whatever it is, whatever sin we want to do, we should be proud of it. That's, that's the culture that we're surrounded with. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about giving up our rights. He's talking about not being proud of the sins that we do. And the next part of the saying is going to make that clearer. And he says, we should take up the cross. Now all three of the synoptic gospels record Jesus talking about taking up the cross. But Luke is unique, for he is the only one that adds the word daily. Take up the cross daily. He's the one synoptic writer that adds that. So if we say we are to take up the cross daily, it can't refer to actual martyrdom because there's no way we can be martyred every day. That can't happen. But we do have the aspect of being prepared for martyrdom if that is what is required. We have the concept of daily self-denial. What does Jesus mean by the cross? Today, I realize the cross is a great emblem. We put it on church buildings. We put it on banners, and bulletins, networks, or networks, necklaces and earrings. We put it all over that stuff. And don't misunderstand. I'm not criticizing it. There's good reason for that. We certainly do. As Paul says, we are those who glory in the cross. So I'm not complaining there's a cross on our bulletin. Don't, don't misunderstand me there. But you need to recognize that in the time of Christ, people would not be excited about wearing earrings with crosses on them. They would not think about that. It would be the same as if you had earrings like with the hangman's gallows on it or, or something. People would say, well, that's a strange choice of, of uh, jewelry to do that. The cross would have been hated. James Edwards writes, In the first century, the cross was not a mere symbol or figure of speech, but a repugnant instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. He mentions that in 71 BC, the Roman general Crassus defeated the slave rebel Spartacus and crucified him and 6,000 of his followers on the Appian Way between Rome and Capua. 
Now, I remember as a young boy, the first, I think the first movie I really remember, I don't know why, but the first movie I ever remember watching was Spartacus. I, I don't know why that, that uh, sticks in my memory, but it does. And I'm sure several of you have also seen that movie. But, but there was crucifixion there, but also Nero uh, was responsible for crucifying several Christians as well. Edwards notes that there are, no, there are no known survivors of a Roman crucifixion. Nobody survived crucifixion. And so I used to uh, live in a town of the Cross, Wisconsin. La Crosse as we know it, but it's actually named after the sport La Crosse, not the Cross of Christ, but nevertheless it was called uh, the Cross and, and that. But we... Uh, to where the, like I say, it's, it's, it's a whole different thing of the cross today, and we have a different reason for doing it. So please, if you're wearing a cross necklace this morning, don't, I am not criticizing that at all. There's good reason for it. But then what does Jesus mean by taking up the cross daily? Well, it can't be martyrdom, as I mentioned, because, you know, although it can be part of it, of course. But one thing we know is he says we have to take it up. Taking up involves being voluntary, that we have to voluntary. Oftentimes, you'll hear people speak of the cross as something that isn't voluntary, something we didn't volunteer for. We talk about a particular disease that we have, and we say, oh, that's my cross. Or, or we talk about maybe our unsaved children, and we say, well, that's our cross. Or unsaved relatives, and that's our cross. But none of those things were voluntary. We didn't voluntarily take them up. They were thrust upon us. And so we can't really look at that. And uh, we know that these words are addressed to the followers of Christ. And even unbelievers have all of those things happen to them. And they're not taking up the cross, that's for sure. For me, the best way to understand this is the things that we are willing to do daily in our Christian walk that our Lord asks us to do, that we'd be willing to do no matter what the cost is. And by nature of them being called a cross. They indicate things that we really don't want to do. Hendrickson says the underlying picture is that of a condemned man who is forced to take up and carry his own cross to the place of execution. Norval Gedenhaus says, he who desires to become his disciple and servant will every day have to be willing to put his own interests and wishes into the background and to accept voluntarily and wholeheartedly the sacrifice and suffering that will have to be endured in his service. The cross is not the ordinary human troubles and sorrows such as disappointments, disease, death, poverty, and the like, but the things which have to be suffered, endured, and lost in the service of Christ. Johnny Erickson Tata, who knows something about suffering, writes, Don't think the cross is simply the wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where you die to sin and live to God. My wife and I and our youngest son uh, spent a term, we spent six months, and um, our son spent a year working with our missionaries in China. And uh, we got to see some things, including things with the underground church and things that people were going through. And now whenever one of us uh, starts complaining about some stupid little thing, the other one will say, oh, I'll write our missionary in Asia and tell him what you're suffering uh, about that. So we do that to each other, and it usually shuts us up from complaining, not always, but, but usually... 
J.C. Ryle said, Every day we ought to crucify the flesh to overcome the world and resist the devil. We ought to keep our bodies under control, bring them into subjection. We ought to be on our guard like soldiers in an enemy's country. We ought to fight a daily battle and war a daily warfare. The command of our master is clear and plain. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. At the risk of being a little trite, let me compare this to dieting. I speak to you as one that has struggled with weight all throughout his life. And uh, since I've moved here, I've gained five pounds. That's all your fault. (laughs) But, you know, in dieting, you can't just say, I'm going to diet today and then tomorrow I'm I'm going to give it up. The old days, I used to, you know, fast for a day and then go to the all-you-can-eat buffet the next day and didn't seem to work so so well in doing that. It's, It's not like I denied myself yesterday. I don't have to deny myself today, but it's a constant struggle. Now, I know it's a bit trite, but that's that's what it's like at the cross. It's it's a daily thing. It isn't something we do a day, a month, or even a year, or even a lifetime. It goes beyond that. Following Christ. We we had a wedding here yesterday, and, and the uh, bride and the groom ended up by saying vows, as long as we both shall live. And we understand that to mean in this lifetime, but our following Christ and our vows to Christ go even beyond that. It is an eternal command. That Christ is always our Savior and we will always follow him. J.C. Ryle again said, A crucified Savior will never be content to have a pleasing, self-indulging, worldly-minded people. Today I will follow, tomorrow I will follow, and every day after that I will follow. When I was preparing this, I thought of a song from the 50s. It's not a Christian song, but it really could be. But it says, I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go. There isn't an ocean too deep, a mountain so high, it can keep me away. Well, that, that really should be the way it is in our Christian behavior as well. Well, let's look at verses 24 through 26. Here again, we continue these very convicting words of Christ. And and perhaps in some way these verses are an explanation of what verse 23 is talking about. Verse 24 talks by telling us that whoever saves his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. What we have here is a paradox, and by paradox I don't mean two doctors, but I mean two things that don't seem to make sense together. The one who tries to save their soul actually loses it, and the one who loses their life actually finds it. The gospel writers record this saying four different times in the ministry of Christ, so it's obviously an important saying. What does it mean for someone to lose their life? Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids that man to come and die. And that's certainly part of it. It means we give up the independent use of our life and put it entirely at the disposal of Christ. Have we really done that? I doubt that any of us can say we've totally done that. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. In verse 25, Jesus tells us the value of a soul. He said it's worth more than the whole world. That makes it pretty valuable, doesn't it? There have been a lot of movies and TV shows through the years that have kind of been built on a particular theme, the premise is that somebody sells their soul to the devil for some kind of reward. 
And I remember a Twilight Zone episode where a man gave and sold his soul to the devil for eternal life on this earth. And, uh, and then along the way, he committed a murder and ended up in jail for life imprisonment. And uh, this, these things, even though they're tried again, they end up showing the stupidity of giving up our souls for any reward whatsoever. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, brings up a scene at the end of the play, A Man for All Seasons, which is about Sir Thomas More. More, you might remember, fell out of Henry VIII's uh, favor when he refused to support the king's infidelity. Henry then arranged for More to be convicted on false charges and put to death. The man who helped Henry in this was named Richard Rich, not Richie Rich of the comics, but Richard Rich, He agreed to testify against Moore in exchange for the kingdom of Wales. At the end of the trial, Moore was passing by that Richard Rich, and he grabbed the medallion around the neck that signified his rulership over Wales, and Moore said to him, Why, Richard, it profits a man nothing to give up his soul for the whole world, but for Wales? But many have given up their soul for a lot less than the kingdom of Wales. But if giving up our soul isn't worth the whole world, and the whole world is worth, it's more than the whole world, then what is it worth? We, we can't even imagine. It's way beyond us. Verse 26 says, If we are ashamed of Christ in this life and of his words, he'll be ashamed of us when he comes in glory. Now, Jesus isn't denying by using me and my and son of man that he's not denying that, that he's the son of man. Of course he's not. He is the son of man. And he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man. In other words, I am that one that is going to be ashamed when I come in glory. Have you ever been ashamed of Christ? I have. And I don't remember ever, and my memory could be faulty, I don't remember ever denying Christ in front of someone, denying my relationship, denying that I was a Christian. But, but more in times that I felt I should have spoken up in a situation, and I didn't speak up. And in that moment, I feel like I I denied Christ in those areas when I have done that. And what a terrible thing it is to be ashamed of Christ. It's an awful thing. And yet, I've done it. And how is that possible? But it is terrible. Verse 27, it's kind of separate, a little difficult to deal with in this context here, but I just want to kind of mention it. It is a difficult verse in the sense that we really don't understand. It's hard to understand what Christ is talking about there. He talks about some of you. We're not sure who that is. What does he mean by seeing the kingdom of God? We're not sure what that is. Matthew says in his account, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Mark puts it this way, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The statement, the kingdom of God coming with power, seems as we first read it to refer to the second coming. But then what does he mean when he says that some of them would not taste death until he came? I reminded of a a service I was at when I was a young man uh, in high school, I believe, and we had this man from England come to preach. And he was very knowledgeable about the Bible. There was no question about that. He knew the scriptures. 
But I remember he said that this was referring to the Apostle John. Remember that saying went around about John that he wouldn't die until Christ came. And and, uh, he said that John never tasted death, that he's still here. Well, actually, he's not here, he told us. He's, He's in Venus. Um, that made me doubt everything a little bit. But, but that's what he says, is John is waiting on Venus with Elijah. And, and uh, so, uh, I, I, anyway, I, I've kind of discounted that now. I'm not really into that. doesn't seem that orthodox. But um, what, what, is, what does this mean? Some, some I've, I've heard that Jesus is talking about tasting death, that they will die, but they won't really taste death, and, and they won't know that. They won't be expo- uh, exposed to all the terrors of death of others. That that's perhaps it. One thing we note is that all three of the Synoptic Gospels put this saying directly before the Transfiguration. They all do. Now remember, they're not all chronological. Not all the Gospel writers are, but, but in this they are. They all put this saying right there. And, and so it seems that maybe Jesus is referring to the Transfiguration, where the disciples that are there will see his glory. And, and uh, that, that's one idea that's out there. Um, and uh, others say that Jesus is referring to the fall of Jerusalem that would happen in 70 AD. And that would make sense as far as some would not die because there will be some that would see the fall of Jerusalem and others that wouldn't. But it, no, nowhere else do Christ or any of the apostles make reference to the fall of Jerusalem being the coming of the kingdom of God with power. So that doesn't seem to make sense. Some say that it's referring to his resurrection, that there are those there that will see his resurrection or his death and resurrection. And so this would inaugurate the kingdom of God. And, and again, that makes sense with some of you. And Romans 1.4 seems to indicate that the um, coming of uh, the resurrection is the coming of Christ with power. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 6.14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So, I mean, is it the transfiguration? Is it the fall of Jerusalem? Uh, is it his death and resurrection and ascension? I'll let you pick. I'm not going to tell you which one. You can have all of those or choose your own adventure. It's okay. Well, let's make some applications. And there are certainly things we can notice. One thing that Jesus is demanding that I think we can all agree on is exclusivity. He must be the only Lord. He is not going to share the stage with anyone. He is our master. No one else can take that place. Whether it be parents, whether it be children, whether it be uh, bosses at work, only one Lord, only Christ. And for sure, I cannot serve Christ and try to make myself the Lord as well even though I still attempt that. So when I hear these verses, I I struggle with this constantly in my life, and I'm sure several of you do as well. It's interesting in the next verses in Matthew's account of the transfiguration, Matthew records this verse, when they opened their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's what our life is to be about. Only one master our eyes only upon him. And that's what Christ demands. When we talk about denying oneself, there's one point I have to make an application. This is especially true in the area of salvation and coming to Christ and receiving eternal life. If we think we can come to Christ and give anything to merit eternal life, we're very much mistaken. 
We are to deny ourselves in our being saved. There's nothing, nothing that can proceed from us that would give us or grant to us eternal life. We can't do it. Paul says in Romans 7:18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For some strange reason, I wasn't put on our denominational committee for the Psalter hymnal. But if I was, I might have argued for this hymn that is not there. It's called, It is Finished, by James Proctor. The first verse says, Nothing either great or small, nothing sinner, no. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. The chorus says, It is finished, yes indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? But the last verse is my favorite. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone. Gloriously complete. So if you're sitting here this morning and thinking and somehow some of the things you have done are enough to get you into heaven because you've done this or that, I'm telling you, you're in the wrong pew. Salvation is all of grace and all of God. Anything we have to brag of, as Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 3, all those things that he was, that he could say, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he said, all those things I count but dumb that I might win Christ. That's what he wants. It's all got to be of him. You say, well, pastor, come on, you say that every week. Yeah, and I'm going to keep saying it. So you might as well get used to it. Because Jesus said it is worth more than the whole world to gain Christ. When we speak of conversion or salvation, there are two kind of competing things that are there. Number one is there's nothing you can bring into the transaction. The transaction of becoming a Christian. Nothing you've done or ever will do. Nothing sin or nothing. But the other side is that following Christ can cost you everything. It is said of the first 12 disciples that at least 10 of them suffered martyrdom and died that way. I'm sure many, if not most of you, are familiar with the words of Jim Elliott, one of the five missionaries to the Waodani people in South America who were martyred, all of the five missionaries were. He uttered those famous words, he, who, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose cost those five men everything they had in this world, but they gained eternal rewards beyond comprehension. But you may not know one of the prayers that Jim Elliot once uttered. He prayed, Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if thou wilt, and consume it with thine everlasting enveloping fire. I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. Have it, Lord, have it all. Pour out my life as an oblation for the world. Blood is only a value as it flows before thine altar. I think many of you agree with me today that the church has lost focus on these commands of Christ that we read this morning. So much of what goes into people's thoughts when it comes to the church that they choose, and I heard it from a friend yesterday, not someone from here, but a friend that called me, I hadn't heard from from years, actually. But so much of what goes into the church goes into what people want. 
what they desire. It's not what will it cost me, but here's what I want to get out of the deal. I found in my life as a pastor that rarely do people cite biblical reasons for leaving the church. Sometimes it might be the preaching, but I haven't heard a lot of that in my life. Rarely have I ever heard at some theological stand that the church holds it's the problem. Most of the time people leave the church over the programs that the church has or doesn't have. The musicians or the kind of music, the age group of the people, the choice of the way the worship is done. Those are the things. In other words, what I want, what I desire. I know those aren't biblical reasons. Was I, when I was in the midst of my theological battle with my old denomination, my family moved to the Twin Cities because I was a pastor there and I knew I couldn't be a pastor in that denomination anymore. And I didn't know where I belonged and who would have me. But I thought I still got to care for my family, so we moved to the Twin Cities area so I could get a job and provide for my family there. And then we had to find a church to go to. I remember the first church we went to, Sunday morning service, and people said, well, we have missionaries today, so we're not going to have a sermon, we're just going to have a slideshow, and I go, oh, great. Not that I don't like slideshows, but I'm not real fond of them yet. Well, anyway, that's another point. That was the first week. Second week, I don't remember, something else happened second. Third week, we went to a church, and uh, they were singing, and were singing, and all of a sudden, they got carried away with singing, and they kept singing, and they kept singing, and the pastor got up and said, you know, we've sang too long, there's not time for a sermon, and I was fed up. <laughs> I come to church to hear a sermon. Now, you may not, and you may say, sit down, but, but I, I come to church to hear the word of God preached. That's what I want to hear. And they didn't, they didn't do it. And I told my wife, I said, I know a church. I didn't know about the OPC. I had no idea the OPC existed. I'd never heard of it in my life. But I said, I know of a church where I'll hear a sermon. I said, it's a ways away. We're going to have to go 30 miles, but we're going to go to that church. And we went, and that was our church. We went to it. was an independent church, but it was a biblical church. And they, and they, uh, and they preached the sermon every single week that was there. And, and again... You say, well, Pastor, you're trying to say some super saint that you just care about put sermons. But no, but that's how believers are. Believers hunger for the Word of God. It's not just me, it's believers. We want God's Word. We want the Word of God to be presented to us in a way we can comprehend it and apply it to our lives. I seek to do that. I don't do it perfectly. But that's what, as a pastor, we seek to do in doing that. I was thinking as I was preparing this message, I wonder if we had walked into the sermon or to the church the morning Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God and we saw people in the pews grabbing on the pillars because they thought they were descending into hell. I wonder how many of us would go back to that church. I don't, I don't know if I would. If I'm, not, I'm not sure. But again, it's all about what do I want in a church? What do I need? You know, I have, I have this need. I have, I have this for my family. I want this. It's all about that. But, but that's not the biblical reasons for doing that. And so the church has lost sight of that. We want to make it as friendly to everybody out there. We want to make you all happy and, and clappy and smiley and all that. And that, that's, that's what church... No, it's not that way. And so, again, we, we need to be able, willing to put our own needs to the side. I want you to notice also that what Jesus asked of us in this passage, he's not asking something that he wasn't himself willing to do. 
He did these things himself in a greater way than you or I could ever do. When he became a man, he came down from the glories of heaven. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. There's an old song that says, He left the splendor of heaven, knowing his destiny was the lonely hill of Golgotha there to lay down his life for me. He completely fulfilled the law, meaning that he forsook all the pleasures of sin. In dying on the cross for our sins, he denied himself freedom from pain and freedom from the infinite punishment of hell that he took for our sins. He denied all those things. When someone like me stands up here and says, you, got, you have to deny yourself and take up the cross, it doesn't mean much. But when Jesus says it, it means everything. Let me give you the words of someone in closing here who understood these commands of Christ. This comes from the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Would that we can all say that. Let's pray. Our precious Lord, as we uh, look at these words, all of us, I believe, are reminded of how far short we fall of them. But you didn't fall short. You did everything. And you did it all for us. You went to the cross for us. You died for us. What a terrible thing it would be for someone to walk out of here, Lord, to, to have heard this and not surrendered themselves to you. I pray, God, that you would work in the hearts of any people that might be here that have never given their lives to you. But, Lord, even for those of us who have, we still struggle with the concept of daily denying ourselves. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us never to be ashamed of you or your words in this generation. Help us never be to be afraid to do whatever you might ask us to do, to go wherever you might ask us to go. Lead us, Christ, and make us willing. Make us your willing servants, Lord. Because, Lord, we don't want to lose our soul. God, we want to follow you wherever you might lead us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.